what happened in the GFC when there was a lot of leverage in the system. It was largely a financial industry crisis. It was a Wall Street, not Main Street crisis. I think now we're living through a Main Street, not Wall Street crisis. This is my fifth really dramatic cycle and each have been slightly different than the others. But my hunch is we're gonna learn a lot from this. In the back end of this, I think commercial real estate will become stronger for it. Those are two pretty impressive guys. One is Ralph Rosenberg, who manages a more than $10 billion portfolio as KKR's global head of real estate. And the other is my colleague, Chris Ludeman, CBRE's global president of capital markets. If these leaders agree on anything, it's that the COVID crisis has sent shockwaves across the nation and the world of commercial real estate. Next on The Weekly Take, the disruption of the global capital markets. Hello, this is Spencer Levy for The Weekly Take, and I'm delighted to be joined by uh, two friends, uh, Ralph Rosenberg, the global head of real estate for KKR, and Chris Ludeman, the global head of capital markets for CBRE. Ralph, Chris, Thank you for joining The Weekly Take. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Before we go much further, can you just tell us where you're talking to us from? Chris. Dallas, Texas. Ralph. Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, guys, we've obviously had a very unusual and uh, sometimes scary last six or eight weeks. Before we get into the nitty gritty of uh, capital flows, uh, Chris, why don't you just give us in your own words, very simply, what's going on in the capital markets uh, for a general audience? How would you explain it? You know, Ralph will have his own particular point of view, but the capital markets clearly are disrupted. And I think the easiest way to describe it is how do you price value, risk, and reward, particularly in times where you have an uncertain outcome in terms of how the pandemic will work through the system. There's a lot of known unknowns at this point, but what I can tell you is that commercial real estate will make it through it. I've been through this is my fifth really dramatic cycle, and each have been slightly different than the others. But my hunch is we're going to learn a lot from this. And uh, in the back end of this, I think commercial real estate will be stronger for it. There may be a repricing in it um, in the near term, but I continue to be optimistic about the future of the, of the commercial real estate business broadly and the capital markets business uh, specifically. For sure, I agree with Chris that there's been a lot of disruption the way I think about it, Spencer, is that we're watching real time what I call the, the steepening of the of the risk return curve, where we're starting to see the very defensive net lease assets in the most defensive asset classes like logistics and industrial uh, actually compress, I think, almost uh, if not back to pre-COVID unlevered uh, cap rates, maybe even through uh, in some instances. Um, the steepening of that risk curve, I think, is also being observed where the, the return expectation for a value add or an opportunistic fact pattern, I think, has widened significantly. You're talking about um, several hundred basis points of risk premium that investors are expecting to compensate them for the uncertainty in where the outcome of a pro forma actually lands. And for the most part of the last you know, 10 years since we started the real estate business at KKR, we have been maniacally focused at investing behind themes where the demand drivers are very predictable and where we think we have an edge in predicting the future demand curve associated with a specific theme, an asset class, a location. 
And now I think that with COVID, you're seeing, you know, incredible uncertainty as to what those demand drivers are going to look like and therefore what the outcome is going to be from a pro forma perspective as time marches on. And as a result of the dispersion of those outcomes being so wide, one should be entitled to a lot more return to take that risk around uncertainty. And so therefore, I come back to my original statement that I I think you're seeing the steepening of this risk return curve uh, in the marketplace today. Is that a global phenomenon, Chris? And how are our global clients, KKR being one of them, uh, how are we advising them to play that uh, looking at different regions of the world? Well, using KKR and Ralph as an example, you think about that $10 billion that he has in AUM, but also the broader uh, AUM that he referenced. I mean, he's got, they've got a global distribution system and their people are global, so they they're they're looking at things from macro and micro, including having key executives distributed around the world. My experience is global investors are super savvy and they know the relative risk rewards and values as they think about various cities and products around the world. So I would say the themes that Ralph is referring to and speaking to and the risk that they're trying to price that's a consistent topic, no matter who we talk to, whether it's domestic or global. But let's touch now upon a very basic question, uh, Ralph, starting with you. How much of value has moved because of the COVID crisis? Yeah, I would say there are very few data points, but in the transitional higher risk, higher return world, I think prices are down 15 to 20-ish percent if you see trades. And I think that's a reflection of the uncertainty on the future that I referred to earlier. I think it's also a reflection of like my three sort of golden rules of real estate valuations. One is unlevered discount rate. I think those have gone up in the value add opportunistic space. Two is cap rate. I think that's gone up uh, because growth going forward is going to be more tempered in, in pro formas and therefore people expect to buy a, a, a higher going in yield. And number three is capital flows. And I think the capital flows on the margin have certainly moved away from the higher risk returning sectors of commercial real estate in the more defensive uh, sectors like core and core plus. Well, another thing that people are looking at in terms of capital flows isn't just capital flows going to private real estate. Those capital flows could go to public real estate. They could buy REIT shares. They could buy bonds. So, Chris, we don't just deal in the sale of individual assets. We also deal with loan sales. We also deal with LP interests. What kind of tea leaves are you seeing there in terms of what's happening to pricing, looking not just at private real estate, but these other asset classes? I think what you're really alluding to is distress. And as you know, we have a relatively robust secondary LP trading platform with desks in New York and, and London. And the number of participants that are coming into that environment has increased several fold, meaning people on the sell side. They've got LP interest that maybe they can't find a market for in a traditional way because uh, redemption queues have been shut. So they're looking for another vehicle to do that. So there's more of those LP interests that are coming in to the into the marketplace. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of money that's been raised for distress. And if capital can find a deep enough discount, not unlike your commentary about buying public securities, there's a market for that. But what we have yet to see is a narrowing in a demonstrable way between bid and ask. So there's still this dance that's going on between what 
capital wants to pay in terms of a discount, certainly not a premium, and what those owners of LP interests are willing to do and how quickly they'll meet the market. But our experience will tell us that will come together. But whether it's going to take 30 days or six months, time will tell. And I would say the same as holds true for our loan sale advisory business. There's a lot of people that are looking for that distress and want to take advantage of it by buying these things at discounts to their unpaid balances. But um, still a little bit of dance there as well. So we think it's going to take four to six months before we see real meaningful trading activity in that area. Well, you know, Chris, um, we talk about this a lot, but I think it might even be longer than that because these government programs, particularly PPP, has been reasonably effective of what I would say raising the bottom in terms of collections have been a little bit better than we expected. TALF has been a little bit better than we expected for the banks in terms of their willingness uh, to just hang on to what might otherwise be troubled debt. Uh, But Ralph, Chris thinks it might be four to six months before we see some of these deals uh, come out. I think it's longer. What's your point of view? You know, I'm probably somewhere in the middle of you guys. I think it's going to take several quarters for us to see real activity. It'll be interesting to see sort of what happens um, as we hit the fall months. But we don't really live in a real estate capital market environment where the root of the problem is over leverage. And we all have to remember that most of the loans that were originated in the marketplace, even the underlying mortgages that support CMBS deals, at the time of origination had often two to three times debt service coverage. And that's very, very different than what happened in the GFC when there was a lot of leverage in the system. It was largely a financial industry crisis. It was a Wall Street, not Main Street crisis. I think now we're living through a Main Street, not Wall Street crisis. Therefore, I think it's going to take longer for the Wall Street capital structures to capitulate um, because of this partnership that I think people feel within the capital structure. I'm hearing more and more large investors tell me that they're really looking towards places like the southeastern United States, looking towards Texas, places that have a very favorable business environment. Uh, and maybe some of it has to do with the speed at which they're planning to reopen from the COVID crisis. Uh, does that have any influence on your thinking about these markets, uh, Ralph? I would say that COVID has accelerated some of these themes that were already in place pre-COVID. Um, the migration to the high growth markets in the South and the Southeast. Uh, we all saw that pre-COVID based on uh, largely uh, based on tax uh, related um, issues, but now you're seeing it by definition based on um, the desire to get out of a, a dense uh, populated environment like New York City. So I think you're seeing an acceleration of that trend. I actually think San Francisco is a little bit different because of the tech market uh, bid um, even you know, in the middle of the COVID crisis, like we're all experiencing today, where the NASDAQ is basically recovered, uh, the tech uh, industry thematically is sort of the, the, the thematic winner relative to the real economy coming out of COVID that also is an acceleration of the, of the tech theme pre-COVID. So, you know, to your point, every market is, is, is idiosyncratic, but in terms of big themes, I would say th- this has accelerated the move to the high growth, low cost of living um, parts of the country that are also tax advantaged. And, um, and, and we'll sort of see how it plays out. I think the acceleration has been really driven by the intensity of focus 
on certain issues around people, culture, connectivity, uh, building corporate advantage. A lot of these things have been brought to the fore just much more rapidly because of this terrible thing that we've all gone through equally. And you, you have to fold in that this idea of safety, security, and people feeling like um, they're comfortable. Now, I'm a firm believer that the gateways will continue to attract tremendous talent, particularly with young, ambitious people. They want to be where the action is. But generally speaking, I, I couldn't agree more with Ralph that cities, no matter whether the big ones or the, the, the second cities or the third cities, they've got to demonstrate why they are the place to be. And there may be more near-term pain in the bigger cities until they really come to the belief that they cannot continue to assume occupational uh, desires are going to outweigh financial desires. And that's got to come into equilibrium. And it may get worse for some gateways before it gets better, but ultimately because they're going to act in their self-interest, they're going to figure out a, a tax regime and an organizational uh, infrastructure that will support making sure they attract talent. Yeah, so Spencer, to your question to pivot on, on, on remote working, my instinct is that um, while everybody sort of has claimed efficiency working remotely, there are three attributes that I would point out. Number one, we're all efficient because we're all home. And in a world where people can travel again, it's not going to be able to work that, you know, I can call anybody I want at any time I want and find them. Number two, I would point out that it's easy to be efficient at home when there are no distractions and you can't go anywhere. Third comment I'd make is that if you're going to onboard anybody and you want to build any type of a culture, uh, it is impossible to build culture on Zoom. And a lot of that culture is created through the one-on-one the -on -one casual interaction, the meal, the beer, the water cooler chatter, uh, the, the, the joking around in the work environment, whatever it might be, it, there is a culture to all of our firms that I think would be impossible to replicate from a standing start if we all uh, formed our firms uh, remotely from day one. And so when I look at the press on the CEO of Barclays or the Twitter guys or the Square guys or the Facebook guys saying everybody can work from home forever, I sort of think of that as a buying opportunity for me. I mean, we've been, we've been buying a lot of public stocks, you know, off of bad um, headline news because we just believe that long-term that people will want to congregate in offices. Now we can debate whether or not the firm that took 300,000 square feet when their lease, you know, started, when it rolls, whether or not they downsized to 280 or 260, because they let people work from home one day a week or whatever, but the counterbalance is that people might want more space. And so I, I'm not a believer that COVID is like a, a negative long-term uh, data point for the office space. In fact, if you look at the survey of people, you know, even in my firm, you know, about half of our people would like to go back to work now. You know? and, and by the way, ironically, it's a lot of young people who, who working, by the way, working from home in a 400 square foot apartment with a cat, you know, for 10 hours a day in New York, you know, three of us should try that for a week and see how much we like it. Well, I think that creating a culture also includes mentoring people. And that's maybe an overused word. But part of it is 
if you're watching people that are extraordinary at what they do, you watch, you listen, you learn, very difficult to get the full dimension of that working remotely. Now you can be productive, but is that productivity sustainable? And can you develop talent with that tether to your company remotely as well as you can do it when you have people that you're working with in a collaborative, integrated setting uh, in an office environment. I don't think that's going to go away. Remember, we've moved in a few short months from the workplace being the primary vehicle for attracting and retaining key employees, making sure that they love where they work and they feel engaged and productive. That social animal will not be put in the in the, the, the doghouse. Another comment I'd make uh, on this topic, which Chris brought up, which is the mentoring comment. One of the things that I've noticed on these Zoom calls is that because they're so structured, even though the young people are on the calls and observing the conversation, a lot of the learning actually takes place when the meeting is over and you're debriefing, walking down the hall, and you're giving you know, some comments on the style of the counterpart, and you're, you're really, in a very informal way, uh, you know, dissecting the, the, the experience with the young people. And, and with Zoom, my young people you know, aren't really uh, getting the benefit of me sort of, or me or any of the other partners in my business sort of doing a debrief with them. And I think that goes to culture and mentoring and leadership that is very, very hard to create and maintain remotely. Let me ask you both one last question. And the last question is uh, green shoots. Chris, what do you think uh, we will see as a green shoot? Uh, things getting better, what should we be looking for? Right now we're kind of seeking and seeing. And uh, what we've done is we've taken 40 different data points that we're collecting. Many of them are unique to our business where we, we're this tremendous vacuum of data. And we're trying to press them down into about 20 to create an active heat map, so to speak, that will, when we get enough of these things, we're going to say, we're going to be a great prognosticator, we believe, unless there's this reversion to a W or a reemergence of the COVID. We just can't see that right now. So what we're going to say is when we see those things, we're going to go to people like Ralph and say, nobody's knowing how to price risk, but we believe for the following qualitative and quantitative reasons, now is the time to move. Now, we won't be perfectly correct, but we will certainly believe that we'll be directionally correct. And we should be able to put that product in its first version in the market the first week of June. Ralph, same question to you. Uh, when do we uh, see the light at the end of the tunnel? When do you think things are going to start to get better? What, what should the, are the signs we should look for? At a very high level, Spencer, I think we're, we're looking for sort of the bottoming of, uh, of the downward slope in demand drivers for any good or service. And at least the flattening of that demand curve to, to show that we've reached the bottom. And we're going to sort of watch a lot of um, data points around where people are spending money versus saving and, and also where companies are able to produce goods and get back up to capacity in terms of production uh, at a high rate and also, most importantly, be able to sell those products. And then state the obvious three other green shoots to look for. One is the, the slowing down of the unemployment picture. Number two is any type of a real 
path to a, not a vaccine for COVID-19, but a real path to a, a viable treatment where people feel like if they get it, they're, they're not going to die. Any type of a treatment where people feel that way, I think will be probably the biggest green shoot of anything. And then lastly, I think it would be silly not to at least recognize that there is a capital market uh, green shoot, in my opinion, around the appetite of lenders, um, both from a volume and, and appetite to put risk on a perspective, but also in terms of spread and also proceeds levels. Um, because if you get a combination of all these green shoots that Chris is mentioning and I'm mentioning, and we're living in a world where the 10-year treasury is 75 basis points, not 60 basis points, uh, it would be an awesome day for the commercial real estate industry because people will have a better shot at, at predicting the pro forma behavior around these demand drivers that really fuel where value is created in commercial real estate. And we will therefore be able to price risk um, with more confidence, which will create more of a meeting of the bid-ask spread in the private markets. And then we'll be back to regular way uh, deal activity. But I think we got a long way to go. Um, to, to look for those green shoots. Well, Ralph Rosenberg, Global Head of Real Estate for KKR, Chris Ludeman, Global Head of Capital Markets for CBRE, thank you for joining the week. Been great day. to be with My you. My pleasure. Thanks, Ralph. For more information, go to CBRE backslash the weekly take. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.